This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Chris Germer. Chris is a clinical psychologist and lecturer on psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He learned about mindfulness meditation in Sri Lanka in 1977, and his interest in mindfulness was rekindled in 1985 when he joined a study group in Cambridge that later became the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy, where he is a founding faculty member. This interest led him to author several books, including The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion. Along with Kristin Neff, Chris Germer has created an eight-week course on the power of self-compassion, which will be launching at SoundsTrue.com on October 16th. Chris Germer is also a featured presenter in SoundsTrue's Self-Acceptance Summit, along with such presenters as Elizabeth Gilbert, Tara Brock, Parker Palmer, Marion Williamson, Rick Hansen, and many others. Chris will be teaching on Overcoming Shame with Self-Compassion. And Sounds True's Self-Acceptance Summit, a free summit, broadcasts from September 11th through September 20th. And you're most welcome to join us at SoundsTrue.com. Today, Chris and I spoke about how to practice mindful self-compassion and how the practice asks us three things, to be aware, to know that we're not alone, and to act with self-kindness. Chris also talked about how to apply mindful self-compassion in difficult situations, like when we make a mistake or feel flooded by a sense of shame. Chris also talked about how people with chronic back pain can use the practice of mindful self-compassion and how working with key principles such as what we resist persists and what we can feel we can heal is leading to some pretty impressive results in the new research that's being done in this area. Finally, Chris talked about how to adjust the language around mindful self-compassion when he's teaching men in order to invite men into the conversation and how important this is. Here's my conversation on the power of self-compassion with Dr. Chris Germer. Chris, you and Kristen Neff established the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion in 2012, and since then have trained upwards of 15,000 people in mindful self-compassion and have also trained more than 500 teachers worldwide. And right here at the beginning of our conversation, I'd love it if you would summarize for our listeners the approach, if you will, of mindful self-compassion. 
Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, we're also amazed at the interest in self-compassion throughout the world. Um, so uh, compassion uh, is the uh, capacity to uh, recognize a person's struggle and to uh, feel that person's struggle and also the wish and the effort to alleviate it. Self-compassion is really uh, doing the same thing for ourselves. It's just uh, compassion turned inward. And that's what we're teaching in uh, the Mindful Self-Compassion course. Uh, we're teaching people how to respond with kindness and understanding when things go wrong in their lives, when they suffer, uh, fail, or feel inadequate. So that's the self-compassion side. But the program is called Mindful Self-Compassion. And uh, mindfulness is really important in self-compassion training. Mindfulness uh, brings a quality of balance or equanimity to uh, compassion training, a kind of a spaciousness. Uh, both Kristen and I had, uh, have been practicing personally uh, mindfulness for a long time before we got interested and involved in uh, self-compassion training. So for us, it was the foundation, but we also find that mindfulness is a necessary foundation for uh, compassion training. So this program is a combination of both, but definitely an emphasis on the uh, self-compassion side of things. How to treat ourselves when we, uh, uh, with kindness, when we uh, suffer, when we fail, when we feel inadequate, because that's not what usually happens. You know, usually when things go wrong in our lives, we, uh, we're self-critical, we isolate ourselves, we ruminate. Self-compassion is the opposite. Instead of being self-critical, that we have self-kindness, instead of isolating ourselves, so we have a sense of common humanity, and instead of ruminating or being absorbed uh, in our troubles, there is a quality of mindfulness, which is a kind of balanced, uh, spacious awareness. So this requires a little bit of training. It, it's not instinctive for most of us. You know, one of the things that I discovered myself is that often when we train in mindfulness, it doesn't necessarily translate into this quality of self-compassion that you're describing. And I found an interesting quote from an article that you wrote, Chris, and I wanted to read it about why we need more than moment-to-moment -moment awareness. And, and here's the quote. When we're overwhelmed by intense and disturbing emotions, such as shame, just noticing what's happening is often not enough. We need to embrace ourselves. And I wanted to talk here about this next step, if you will, that's even beyond or contained, you could say, within mindfulness, but often we don't take it, this embracing of ourselves. Yeah, so that really is uh, the nub of the matter, what you're describing there, Tammy. Um, uh, both Kristen and I in our mindfulness practices eventually came up against, you know, difficulties that were not, um, could not be worked with very well with simply with a kind of a warm-hearted awareness. Uh, for Kristen, you know, she's, uh, she has an autistic child and that has all the 
all the uh, stresses and strains of a special needs mom. And for me, it was an encounter with 20 year encounter with public speaking anxiety. And what we both realized is that sometimes we just have to hold ourselves uh, in a loving way, much like others, we would like others to hold us when we're struggling. Sometimes we just need to hold ourselves before we can hold our experience. In order to be able to um, address shame, for example, we um, we need, it's, it's really hard, so to speak, to do it alone. We need to, uh, we need to uh, have a sense of uh, being held. And we can actually do that with self-compassion. Um, we actually can hold ourselves in a way that uh, we can address shame and it becomes workable. Not just shame, but other difficult emotions like, uh, uh, you know, dread, um, uh, despair, grief. These kind of emotions, they, they just kind of manage to overwhelm us, you know. When we practice mindfulness, we need, it's like, holding a camera, but you have to hold it steady, you know? Sometimes the camera is just shaking, you know? What does it take to stabilize the camera? What does it take to uh, stabilize our our hearts? And that's where compassion comes in. Compassion is um, is uh, more uh, relational. It's, it, it's about sentient beings. It's about like me and you, or a part of me relating to another part of me. Uh, it's, um, it has that, uh, personal relational aspect, which sometimes in mindfulness practice can kind of slip away. So what we're hoping to do with self-compassion training is just kind of slip it back in, you know, not forget sometimes, sometimes the practitioner needs a little extra love. Now, when you talk about the relational aspect of self-compassion, I think what comes up for a lot of people is, you know, it's really easy for me to be compassionate with other people when they're suffering or feel like they've made a mistake. But, oh my, it's not easy to bring that to myself, as you say, me and me. Why is it so hard for people to bring compassion to me and me instead of offering it to someone else? Yeah, well, so that's that's the million-dollar question, and uh, we... We don't really know for sure, you know. I have a, I have a little personal theory about it. I'm happy to sure. uh, share, um, and that is that um, when we feel threatened from the outside, uh, the body very quickly goes into a fight, flight, or freeze. But when we're threatened from the inside, we kick into uh, self-criticism, self-isolation, and self-absorption. In other words, freezing is like getting stuck in our heads. Fleeing is uh, abandoning ourselves. And, and fighting is self-criticism. So I think it's actually an instinctive uh, reaction. It's part of the you know evolutionarily adaptive threat defense system. But when we don't have anything external to deal with, we go after ourselves. I think that's the main reason. I also think, Tammy, that um, there's a cultural element to this. Uh, you know, I've been teaching self-compassion all over the world, and um, it seems to me that uh, in uh, countries or parts of the country where 
um, uh, where there's a lot of um, competition, where the sense mm-hmm. of self is uh, highly contingent on where you stand uh, in the social hierarchy, in the pecking order, then, then a person's sense of self becomes kind of unstable. You know, it depends on how we're doing. And um, self-compassion um, is, is more about having a quality of a secure base inside oneself. And I believe that in cultures that are more uh, collectivist and also stable, that people have a more stable sense of self. And, um, and, uh, and so that's actually what self-compassion is about. Self-compassion is about uh, when we suffer and struggle, rather than trying to adjust ourselves on the social hierarchy, we, we actually respond by bringing kindness and understanding to ourselves. It's, it's kind of a portable way of uh, enhancing self-worth. And I think that's more necessary nowadays in the age of Facebook and in, uh, as people are migrating into cities and constantly comparing themselves with one another. I think our sense of a personal secure base is eroding. And as a result, I think, I think we just need more self-compassion. Mindfulness appears to be a perfect uh, response to the fast pace of society and, and the kind of the, the fragmented attention spans that we have with uh, electronic media. And uh, compassion, in my view, is a, is a healthy uh, response to uh, the ways our sense of self have been uh, er- are eroding in this uh, environment and also in increasingly competitive uh, uh, circumstances. So this is all speculation, Tammy. No, but you, you mentioned that you've been teaching mindful self-compassion in lots of different cultural contexts, and I know you teach it all over the world. So I'm curious, in different cultures, how does the teaching flow differently? Well, it flows uh, actually pretty much the same. I mean, this is the amazing thing to me. I mean, in the, different cultures have different ways of relating in, in uh, you know, a workshop situation and so forth. But what I found is, is that the uh, tendency to be critical with oneself when things go wrong is universal. This is why I, I believe that it's something instinctive in us, this fight, flight, freeze response turned inward, you know. Uh, I, it seems to be pretty universal. Mm. I mean, it's fascinating to teach different cultures, teach uh, in different cultures because, uh, you know, I get to know the culture a little bit. But when you get to know the individuals, I have to say there's so much, we're so much more alike than different. And this quality of self-compassion is is being... Um, uh, enthusiastically received everywhere we go. It's remarkable to me. It's also an incredible uh, gift to be able to go to so many different places and to be able to engage people at such a fundamental level, you know, these in, in, in deep in the midst of our vulnerability. But I have to say, 
the places that were vulnerable, they're mostly the same. They're about losses and failures and, and uh, we're a lot more alike than not alike. And I think that self-compassion is a kind of a common factor in uh, emotional well-being that seems to be received everywhere pretty, pretty enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. Okay, Chris, let's say someone's listening and they say, you know, I'm really hard on myself. I need more self-compassion. Chris, what are the core elements? How can I develop it? Yeah, well, so the very first um, step has already been accomplished, and that's saying, oh, you know, I need more self-compassion. What that means is there's a kind of a sensitivity to struggle, a sensitivity to suffering. There is an awareness of pain. So that's really the start, you know, like, oh, this hurts, you know, like, oh, I beat up on myself. That hurts. So that's the first step. And that's mindfulness, you know, just being aware of the way things are. Hmm? And then the second step is to know that uh, that when we're struggling, for example, struggling by beating up on ourselves or struggling with some kind of loss uh, or misfortune, to know that you're not alone. This is really important that people... This is a key factor about self-compassion that often people don't quite, mm, uh, it, it seems more elusive, this quality of common humanity, you know, I'm not alone. In other words, a sense, uh, Tammy, of, oh, this is what people feel in a situation like this, you know, rather than, oh, this is unique and I'm the only one in the world who feels like this. Like, no, 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 no. Struggle is a part of living. This is one of the kinds of struggles that people get into, and this is how they feel. So that's a quality of common humanity, knowing that we're not alone when we struggle. This is a very important part of self-compassion. And then the third part is uh, self-kindness. The third part is, um, we could say uh, in a simple way, treating ourselves as we would treat somebody who we really care about. In other words, asking yourself the question, huh, if I had a really good friend struggling right now in this way, what would I say to this person? Or what would I like somebody to say to me right now? And then asking yourself, can I say that to myself? Can I offer myself that kind of kindness? Can I treat myself in that way? the way that I would like to be treated or the way that I would instinctively treat somebody uh, who is struggling, who I like a lot. So those are the three parts, knowing when we're struggling, knowing we're not alone, and caring for ourselves as we would care for somebody whom we genuinely love. I want to focus on the third step, if you will, because, okay, I don't think it's that hard to be aware. I'm in a lot of pain right now. I think people will get that. And then Mm -hmm. this recognition, not being alone, that takes some of the sting out of it, but it still really hurts, whatever the situation is, but doesn't feel quite so bad. But this third step, actually then reaching out to myself and saying something that's Mm. kind and caring. And, you know, I think a lot of times people 
just don't have that type of resource. It's not that easy to just make that step. So how mm. do we develop, if you will, a toolkit? And then mm. how do we make the leap and do it? Yeah, well, so um, <laughs> I was about to say it's, it is a tall order, but that's why we developed this eight-week program, because it's kind of carefully scaffolded to to actually accomplish this, you know, it's, um, uh, if I can just back up just a little bit, uh, people often when they're struggling, they don't know that they're struggling. So to actually get traction with that and to open toward that experience of struggle is, is, is really important because what we're looking for is a kind of a melting of the heart. Uh, but if, but, and not to just kind of throw self-kindness at ourselves when we're struggling, because that's like sugar coating and it's not going to work. And it ultimately um, just feels superficial. But let's assume that we've actually gotten it like, whoa, this is a tough situation. And I know that I, and I get a sense that I'm not alone, how to bring kindness to ourselves. And um, so there are many different pathways uh, to do that, Tammy. Some people, for example, are physical, you know, and for example, we have a practice called soothing touch where people learn um, a simple touch on the body, like a hand over the heart or something, and to linger with that and just to feel the touch and the warmth of the hand. This actually is a universal expression of uh, compassion uh, you know, in all different cultures around the world. And it actually works when we do that for ourselves. So, so one pathway is, uh, through physical touch. Uh, another pathway is through language, like I described, but you know, some people just don't have that kind of language. Uh, another pathway is behavioral, you know, in other words, do you know when you're struggling and can you do something physically for yourself in that moment precisely because you're struggling. And so what does that mean? You know, that people are actually quite good at this because they know how to care for themselves. They just don't care for themselves um, in a nice way when they're struggling. In other words, they start to ruminate and they beat up on themselves. But what would it be like, for example, oh, I'm going through a tough time. What I really need to do now is to take a bath. What I need to do is to like not go out this evening and just make myself a really nice dinner and play with the dog, you know. In other words, to be physically really kind to ourselves is, uh, let's say behaviorally kind to ourselves, is self-compassion. We can also be kind to ourselves by um, uh, uh, process, visualization processes. Some people are kind of visualizers, you know, so you can uh, visualize a, a religious figure, maybe, you know, Jesus or the Dalai Lama, and, uh, you know, ask oneself, oh, what is it, what would it be like to be in this being's presence right now? What would I like to say to this being? What would this being say to me, you know? So in some respects, it, uh, for some people, the self-kindness part of Self-compassion training is almost like secular prayer, you know? Only what we're doing is we're, we're activating within ourselves what we call a compassionate part, 
and we're speaking to the uh, hurting part or the wounded part from the perspective of the compassionate part. So those are three different uh, ways of doing it, but we have uh, many others. Well, those are very helpful. And I can certainly imagine engaging in this kind of third-step self-kindness when it's not so bad. Do you know what I mean? I still kind of have my wits about me. You know, it was a hard day. I'm going to be kind to myself. Lots of people had hard days. I'm going to get in the bath. Okay, I can do that. But what (laughs) trips me up is when I imagine just something really terrible happening. You know, I, I... backed up from my driveway and killed a new young tree or something like that. I ran over a tree in the process. At that moment in time, Mm. I just don't think I could make the move to self-kindness. I'm too upset at that moment. So do you have any interventions, if you will? Uh, Well, (laughs) you're speaking about the the, uh, the tree. I was uh, pruning a very old uh, rosebush uh, in our backyard, um, which some of the um, branches had died and others hadn't. And I chopped off a main branch of this very old rosebush that I love. And my wife was gardening at the same time and she realized what I did, the rosebush that she loved, mm. you know. <laughs> And I just had this deep sinking feeling like, oh, but mostly, (laughs) mostly I just felt, uh, you know, I felt this sense of loss, but I also felt so ashamed that I had done this, you know, in other words, with the best of intentions. But, you know, I set back this rose bush about 10 years of growth, you know, by my inattention and mistake, you know, so. So, uh, and in that moment, you've done a lot of training and trained others. Were you able to practice self-kindness? Well, so, so I can tell you what happened. You know, I, I felt, first of all, I, I, I could feel in my body, but in other words, I, first, first there was just a kind of an overwhelmed feeling like, oh my God, I can't believe I did this. But then my from practicing particularly self-compassion for shame, my awareness went right down my body. I could feel in my chest, in my throat, my chest, my stomach, my legs, my feet. I could feel like a sinking feeling. And then I could feel kind of a hollowness in my gut. And then I said to myself, oh, shame, shame. You're feeling shame, Chris. Oh, this is really hard. You're feeling shame. This, you know, probably if you were more attentive, this wouldn't have happened. However, you know, these kinds of things happen. And, oh, this is not a good moment. And then there was even a little voice in me that said, you know, you're a good man. You're going to get through this, but it's going to be hard for a little while. Just hang in there. So you get it? It was a lot of things happening. There was like a physical awareness of, of pain, not just in my head. This is important to, when, when we have emotions to anchor the emotion in the body. There was a naming of the emotion. These are two mindfulness practices. 
And then I was really in it. And then there was a sense of, you know what? You're probably not the only pruner in the world that has ever <laughs> chopped 10 years off of rosebush. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and then kindness, it flowed. The, the kindness flowed kind of naturally out of that. I can tell you it didn't put a, when every time I looked at my wife's stricken face, you know, um, you know, I, 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 that was a whole another layer. But then what I actually said to her was, you know, I love this rosebush. I love this rosebush as much or more than you. I've been training this rosebush for 10 years. I am so sad that this happened. And, and in connecting with her in her despair, then she started to lighten up. So what was interesting is that a kind of a positive cycle emerged. So first through self-compassion and creating some goodwill within myself, I didn't have to be defensive vis-a-vis -vis her. I could engage her in her struggle and, and share that struggle. You know, if I were just ashamed and defensive, that would never happen. And then the two of us were able to just kind of like think about, okay, so what are we going to do now? And we came up with a plan. So what was interesting is that it also had kind of behavioral implications. It created what Barbara Fredrickson calls a positive cycle by anchoring into goodwill for myself. I was able to then experience goodwill toward her and then and a sense of uh, common struggle, you know. What I was particularly touched by was the sentence you said to yourself, you're a good man, Chris. That really yeah. touched my heart that that sentence was there for you in that moment. It's a beautiful sentence and true. Well, thank you. And yeah, it was there. It was there. Yeah. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, one thing that I've noticed is that as more and more people see the value of being kind to ourselves when things like that happen, sometimes I've heard myself say to other people or I've heard people say to me, oh, you know, you should really be kind to yourself right now. And part of me just feels in that moment when someone says it to me, kind of like giving them the finger, just to be honest, yes. like that's not very helpful. So right. I'm curious, how do we help other people be kind to themselves without saying, you should be kind to yourself right now. <laughs> right. This particular uh, issue comes up all the time when we, when we do self-compassion training with uh, therapists, because what they want to do is, you know, deliver the goods, you know, like, like you have a pound of self-compassion and you want to kind of spoon feed it to your client and then everything's going to be fine. Yeah. But unfortunately, um, or fortunately, that's not how it works. You know, um, there's uh, the uh, 
So, so I'm, a lot of what I've done in the last few years has been really focusing on how to teach self-compassion. And what we know is that the foundation of teaching self-compassion is to be compassionate. And what that often means is to throw out everything that we know conceptually about self-compassion and just be compassionate. It means when somebody's struggling to feel it in your heart, to allow your heart to flutter and vibrate with that person's heart, to really take it in. You know, this is the foundation of compassion, taking it in, you know, the, the struggle. And to have the courage to take it in. And then, uh, and then to be a natural human being with another person whom you like, you know, assuming that you like this person. So in other words, to embody or model Compassion is the way is the foundation of teaching self-compassion. And when we do that, inevitably, uh, people then become curious or interested in, uh, you know, how they might be able to help themselves. But if we start the conversation with you need more self-compassion, that's, you know, to want to give somebody the finger is a natural thing because it's almost like we just gave them the finger. You know, we just said, you know. In, in a subtle way, we said, don't bother me with your struggle. We didn't have the courage or the strength to open to that pain ourselves, you know. So the only person to blame would be ourselves if we're trying to, you know, force compassion on somebody. We really need to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? And often the reason, Tammy, is because we are experiencing empathic distress and we would like our empathic distress to go away and one way we do it is trying to fix another person. And we have this, you know, slick new way of like fixing people called self-compassion. So we throw self-compassion at them and they are not happy. You know, this is, you know, so we got to get rid of all that stuff. And we have to just like be human, you know, be compassionate, be kind, and then see what emerges from there. You know, often people uh, become interested in self-compassion, but, you know, you can't make somebody self-compassionate. They need to want to be to mm -hmm. be kind to themselves. And the main reason, as I said before, this is such an important part, is it does require a certain amount of courage. It does require a certain amount of vulnerability. And we really need to understand that opening to pain is, is part of it. In fact, Kristen and I were um, at one point thinking maybe we should call this the opening to pain program. Because this this is fundamental, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, it would have come. <laughs> now, in doing some research for this conversation, Chris, I discovered that you've looked at self compassion and chronic back pain, and that mm -hmm. actually people who practice self compassion can find relief from back pain. And I thought that was so interesting. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, we're actually um, this uh, Saturday doing a, a, a training with uh, people who have lower back pain. They've already had their brain scanned, an fMRI scanner, and they're going to have them rescanned. So what we're interested in looking at is um, what does the brain look like when the heart is melting? What does the brain look like when the heart is melting? And and in particular, one of the 
the you know core aspect of chronic back pain is wishing not to have chronic back pain. In other words, it hurts, and every fiber in our body says no. But the problem is, is that the more we do that, the more we put ourselves into what we call a, a we activate what we call the threat defense system in the human body, and it just and and basically the body becomes tighter, and we get more pain. So. Uh, what self-compassion does is it activates a different uh, physiology in the human body. It activates the mammalian caregiving system. So you, we all know what this is like. For, so, for example, if you have pain and somebody puts their arm around you and, and really loves you, then inside you have a feeling like, oh, they didn't just do surgery on your lower back. But your whole relationship to yourself and to your back changes. In other words, there's a relaxing, there's a letting go. And so this is what's called regulating emotion through affiliation, through a sense of connection, through a sense of care. So when people have lower back pain, the problem is that because it's physically hurtful initially and then secondarily because it, it becomes a social problem, in other words, uh, people with lower back pain are criticized for being in a bad mood. They're criticized for not being able to do everything they're used, they used to do. It becomes a social problem. So with back pain, back pain then eventually becomes a shame issue. So there are multiple layers of pain. It starts with physical pain. Then there's the tensing reaction to pain. And then there's social pain. There's so many levels of pain. And so what we do in self-compassion training for back pain is we learn to name all this stuff and we also learn then to know that back pain is not our fault. Nobody woke up one day saying, gee, I'd like to have chronic back pain and wreck my life, you know? Uh, we know that it's not our fault, we know that we're not alone and we begin to treat ourselves in the opposite way that the body treats us and that others treat us. In other words, we begin to relax rather than to tighten up and we begin to give ourselves messages that we need to hear when we're struggling, not the ones that we do hear. And all of this has the underlying physiological function of shifting from the uh, threat defense system to the mammalian caregiving system. And that's what we wanna see in the brain. We would like when people experience pain, rather than uh, fighting and resisting and becoming cranky and critical, we would like them to be able to say, yeah, this hurts. This is not fun for me. It's not fun for anybody who's in pain. And to talk to ourselves in the way that we need to be talked to. That's what we want to see in the scanner. <laughs> When you say talk to ourselves the way we need to be talked to, could I hear that voice, what that would sound like? Oh, yeah. So, well, it depends on the person. Yeah. You know? For somebody, you know, for somebody like me, it would be, it would be, you know, Chris, uh, this really hurts and you are not able to do the things that you want to do. And it is breaking your heart. 
I know this. And I just want you to know that you are, you know, maybe I would say something like you said, you are still a good man. You are still the same person. And you will be able to, uh, for now, just do as much as you can do. You don't have to do more than that. And let's see how it emerges. Let's see what happens. But for now, definitely this hurts. And you know, I might even say to myself, I love you. I love you even though you're suffering like this. I love you. I might even say that too. Yeah. As I was reading, Chris, about some of this work you're doing with self-compassion and back pain, there was a quote, and I thought, wow, this is a quote that could definitely be on a post-it that I could look at again and again in my life. What we can feel, we can heal. I thought that was so profound, and perhaps you could comment on it. Well, so I can't uh, claim authorship for that. It's um, in the mindfulness community, what we resist persists and what we can feel, we can heal. But um, yeah, as long as we're, I think that's a, I think that quote speaks very well to uh, back pain. So that quality of constant fighting uh, just makes things worse. And uh, that statement, what we can feel, what that really means is opening to pain, opening to discomfort. But opening to it, you know, some people say, oh, my God, I can't open to it because it's going to get worse. Actually, um, it, it might, you know, subjectively get a little worse in the beginning. But what really happens when we open to it is we get perspective on it. We get um, even a, a, a little bit of distance, not in a detached way, but in a kind of in a kind of warm, appreciative way, like, oh, oh. So when we say what you can feel, you can heal, it refers to opening to pain with uh, perspective and with tenderness and with kindness. Uh, a real uh, quality of uh, being with, kind of a participant observer, but the critical element, Tammy, is not being engulfed in it, not being entangled in it, not getting swept away in the storyline, you know? To be with it, but in a new way. That's what we mean by what you can feel, you can heal. Really feeling, feeling with, you know? In this same article about self-compassion and back pain, at one point you were working with a client and you directed her to ask herself, and you called it the quintessential self-compassion question. What do I need? That we can ask ourselves this question. What do I need? I thought that was also something worth bringing forward and, and having you comment on, the power of that question. Yeah, well, to think about the power of it, uh, we can ask ourselves, okay, as a child, how often did somebody set us down, look us in the eyes, 
with a truly compassionate searching gaze and say, honey, what do you need? Tell me, what do you really need? So how often have we been asked this question as children? You know, usually we're told what we need and what we should do. And then we get older, you know, we become teenagers and we get become adults. We don't ask ourselves that question. And if we don't ask ourselves that question, how can we get what we need? It's only gonna come by accident. Or maybe there's a part of us that's gonna insist on it, but you know, if we're lucky, but <laughs> the, the way to uh, be truly compassionate is to stop and ask ourselves this fundamental question, what do, what do I need? And, and this is also different than like, what do I want? You know, our wants are endless. We can want, you know, as many micro moments as there are on a television, we can want stuff. <laughs> but, but our needs are what we call, um, we say our wants are from the neck up and our needs are from the neck down. So our needs uh, for ex are universal human needs. So for example, the needs for health and safety and need to belong, need for love, need for connection, uh, these kind of things. Those are our needs. And when we can name our needs in a more general way, uh, we can, uh, but also maybe in a more specific way, what do I need in this situation? We can give it to ourselves. And that is the essence of behavioral self-compassion. But if we cannot ask ourselves, what do I need? How can we respond? How can we respond with uh, compassion and self-compassion? It's a central question. Some people, Tammy, um, they, they cannot answer the question. In other words, some people, for example, who have been traumatized or neglected, that question is so strange and so foreign that they can't even, that they don't know where to begin. So then, for example, in the MSC program, we, we're more specific, like right now, what do you need to comfort your body? Or what do you think you need to feel a little more safe? Or what do you need to hear right now? Or how would you uh, like to, wh what do you need to take that next step uh, that you need to take? You know, so you can, we can be, uh, we can take that global question to be a little more specific, but the question itself, gets the whole train out of the station, the whole self-compassion train. Now, we've talked, Chris, about bringing self-compassion to ourselves when we've made a mistake, like cutting the rose limb, and even when we're feeling experiences of shame. But I want to talk about when people have a sense of sort of fundamental unworthiness, when that's what we're experiencing. Like, I just feel like a POS, or I feel just worthless. I just feel worthless. Yeah, yeah. How can we even approach self-compassion, self-kindness in those moments when we're that down, if you will? 
Yeah. Um, so that's a really a good question. You know, um, I'm a therapist, and um, I know somebody else who took very bad care of herself, but she took wonderful care uh, of a dog. The dog was like an amazingly beautiful dog, and she wasn't eating very much because she didn't have much um, uh, money. But she learned to say, may Ginger be happy, may Ginger be safe, may Ginger be strong, may Ginger be free from suffering. She learned to consciously express loving kindness and compassion for her dog. And then she started to include herself. May Ginger and I be safe. May Ginger and I be healthy. May Ginger and I be strong. And then eventually she was able to say, ah, may I. So you follow what I'm saying? She was able to find her way back to herself through the love and affection that she naturally felt toward another being. The irony of this whole thing, uh, Tammy, is that um, historically, all the world religions, you know, with the golden rule, more or less say, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, as you already love yourself, now go ahead and love your neighbor. But what we're finding in 2017 is we need the reverse. Mm-hmm. In other words, love yourself as you naturally love some other living being. We find our way home through how we are able to love others. This is a really important point that you brought up. Thank mm-hmm. you for doing mm-hmm. I also want to circle back a moment towards the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about how you came to the practice of self-compassion. You mentioned that you had a 20-year struggle with anxiety about public speaking. And I'm curious how self-compassion came into play to help you become the beautiful public speaker you are today. I can imagine someone would say, that's an anxiety problem. What does self-compassion have to do with an anxiety problem? Well, I always thought it was an anxiety problem and it didn't help, you know? So as a, so for 20 years, I suffered from public speaking anxiety and, and, um, I tried everything as a clinician, you know, I, uh, and also as a mindfulness-based clinician. So I tried to make a lot of space for anxiety. I also tried positive self-statements, and I also tried drugs, you know, like beta blockers, everything you can imagine, exposure. I did every, I accepted every invitation I could, I received for public speaking, hoping that would desensitize the thing, but nothing worked. Um, and and then once I learned uh, loving kindness meditation, particularly starting with myself, like may I be safe, may I be peaceful, may I be healthy, may I live with ease, uh, which which you know through most of this time that I was practicing mindfulness, I really was not interested in. I thought it was sort of oh I don't know sappy, clumsy, too many words. I didn't like it, but. Um, at one point, I, I did that. I practiced basically loving kindness for myself, particularly in the context of uh, public speaking anxiety. And uh, it created a kind of uh, anchor or foundation so that when I had to speak at a very large gathering, um, uh, the terror turned to 
oh gosh, it, it turned to love. I looked out over at this crowd and usually um, they look like the enemy to me. <laughs> and, and after four months of practicing loving kindness meditation, they look beautiful to me. And I, the, the fear just went away. So then the question I ask myself is, how did this happen? And the, and what I discovered is that actually public speaking anxiety is, is a shame disorder. It's not an anxiety disorder, you know? So, you know, if you lose a key, where are you going to find it? You're going to find it where you lost it, not where the light is, you know? So I was always looking at the anxiety. I was looking at the expression of shame and trying to work with that, but it never touched the problem. The problem was deep down inside, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm giving a lecture on mindfulness and I can't speak. That means that I don't know what I'm talking about, i.e. I'm fraudulent. That means that I'm incompetent. That means I'm a little stupid. You know, these self-statements, these this sort of mental part of shame, this, you know, self-criticism and self-doubt, that I couldn't touch. I couldn't touch um, when I considered public speaking anxiety, anxiety disorder, and I couldn't, no matter how much space I made for it as a mindfulness practitioner, I was not making space for um, shame. And what happened with, once I learned loving kindness meditation, particularly self-compassion, it was quite amazing. I actually didn't even have to address the shame directly. What happened was, is I, I just started having this loving resource when I started to tremble and fear, i.e. as shame was arising, this uh, warmth was co-arising with it, which I never had before. I could never go there before with uh, this sort of warmth and loving kindness and compassion. I, in other words, I could not move out of dread from shame into caregiving until I learned this resource of self-compassion. So the funny thing to me was that only after the problem kind of dissipated, and I really haven't had much public speaking anxiety since then, and that was in 2005 or 2006, um, uh, what was interesting to me is that it was only after this resource had addressed the shame problem that I was even able to see it as a shame problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yes. sometimes we think when we feel shame, we need to fix our shame. We don't have to, f I, I believe that's not the case. I think we just need to build the resource the resources of mindfulness, compassion, and then the shame begins to dissolve or at least becomes manageable such that we can look at it in a new way. So again, the, the lesson for me is sometimes we just need to hold ourselves before we can hold our experience. Yeah. Chris, <laughs> I just have one final question for you, which is that I know that you teach mindful self-compassion to men specifically for men. And I'm curious if you have to present self-compassion differently when you're talking to men. And part of my interest here is that you're one of the presenters in Sounds True's Self-Acceptance Summit, a summit that begins on September 11th and runs through September 20th. 
And we have lots of terrific presenters, including Elizabeth Gilbert, Ian Van Zant, Marianne Williamson, Tara Brock, and many others, most of whom, but not all, are women, but many of the presenters are women. And I also have a sense that most of the audience for the Self-Acceptance Summit will be women. And it's almost as though self-acceptance, self-compassion is seen by the public at large as a woman's issue, not a human issue. And I wonder why that is. And is it something about the language of self-compassion? Don't men need self-compassion as much as women do? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I definitely think they need it as much as women. I think men get a little freaked out about self-compassion. It, it, it. Um, I think. Uh, I mean, that's. I think compassion in general is 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 gendered. Uh, I think it tends to be more associated with nurturing. Uh, but um, actually, self-compassion is. There's a lot more to it than nurturing. So we like to say that there's a yin side and a yang side to uh, compassion and to self-compassion. The yin side, which is what people tend to associate it with, is is uh, all about you know comforting and soothing and validating. It's about kind of being with, that quality of being with in a wholehearted, loving way. But the yang side of compassion is about protecting and providing and motivating and and, uh, uh, you know, that's more commonly associated with a traditional male role. But I have to say, um, I think we need both. You know, I think women need to be able to protect themselves, to say no. They need to motivate themselves to get out there and do what they need to do. They need to uh, provide for themselves, you know, just as men need. <laughs> they need the capacity to comfort themselves, soothe themselves and and uh, understand themselves better. And, uh, you know, so for example, um, say uh, veterans, uh, uh, of, there's a study done on self-compassion with veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, the research shows that self-compassion is a very powerful factor whether or not people develop post-traumatic stress disorder when they get home. And what's interesting is that, um, is that uh, self-compassion predicts whether a person is going to get post-traumatic stress disorder more powerfully than severity of combat experience. Wow. What this means is, is that, is that uh, men can be really good, you know, in terms of protecting and providing and being out in the world and doing, you know, dangerous and scary things. But they also need to be able to comfort themselves, soothe themselves, validate themselves. They also need this yin side in order to recover. So another way of saying this is that uh, we cannot spend our whole lives in the flight-fight condition. We also need to be act activating caregiving. And we can activate that in many different ways. We can activate that by loving others. We can activate that by loving ourselves. But it is essential for human nature, for the survival of the human body, that we do activate caregiving and that we do it in both ways, in my view, both through 
the yin side, we need to be able to comfort and soothe ourselves. And the yang side, we need to be able to protect and provide and motivate ourselves. So we need both. I think that men will, uh, when they really understand what uh, self-compassion is all about, they're going to be all over this thing. You know, right now we're starting to bring self-compassion into the business world, into the medical world. There are 1,200 studies out there in the uh, peer-reviewed scholarly journals on the benefits of of uh, self-compassion. I think the more men understand, actually, that this is, uh, you know, if you want to give it a cause-benefit analysis, it's a very good thing. <laughs> and the more they understand um, what this is and how beneficial it is in all ways in life, I think they'll be on board. But this is just the beginning. Uh, Tammy, you know, we've only known about self-compassion in a strategic and scientific way uh, for 15 years, you know. And so the same thing with mindfulness, you know. Mindfulness has been around for 35, 40 years, and and uh, it's taking, uh, you know, it's mainstream and sweeping the world, men and women. I think compassion is next. <laughs> Huge ROI on self-compassion. <laughs> I've been speaking with Chris Germer. He's the author of the book, The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion. And he's one of the featured presenters in Sounds True's Self-Acceptance Summit, which begins on September 11th and runs through September 20th. Over 30 presenters in total, and it's free when you tune in and listen to the broadcast during any 24-hour period, September 11th through September 20th. And also, Chris Germer, along with Kristen Neff, has created with Sounds True an eight-week course on the power of self-compassion. That course begins on October 16th. For more information about both of these offerings, you can visit us at SoundsTrue.com. Chris, thank you so much for all of your beautiful work and your beautiful heart. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.